We're in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, if you want to join me as we just jump right into the first couple of verses of 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're here with us this evening, we've been going through a series on the life of Elijah. He's a great prophet in the Old Testament, phenomenal prophet. In fact, we'll see next week, he performs one of the most amazing contests that you'll ever read in Scripture, calling fire down from heaven to prove that Jehovah is God and all that takes place. And it's a wonderful story. In fact, our kids have done a couple different uh, musical programs about that idea of the fire coming down from heaven. We'll look at that next Sunday morning. But for this evening, let's pick up on the obscure section of the story. It is at the end of this, this account that we've been talking about that what has happened three years before we come into chapter 18, Elijah was going to, as a prophet to King Ahab and Jezebel. King Ahab and Jezebel are the most wicked of the rulers. They have taken Israel, the Jews, away from worshiping Jehovah God to worshiping a false god, an idol god, a god by the name of Baal. And Jehovah had sent Elisha as the prophet, Elijah, excuse me, as the prophet to say to them, you got to stop. And because you haven't stopped, here's the punishment that's going to come. Three, three and a half years, there's going to be no rain. Your kingdom's going to be devastated. And you're not going to have rain, which was stated in the book of Deuteronomy, if you don't obey me, if you have false gods, I'll keep the rains back. So he says, God is going to, con- he's going to fulfill his promise of judgment, and you're not going to have rain for several years until I come and see you once again. Well, then he left and went into the wilderness, fled into an area that we talked about, Cherith or Kareth, the idea of whittling is the word, and then God moved him to Zarephath, a place that was a crucible, more testing for Elijah. And in the meantime, Ahab has got a nationwide manhunt out. Elijah has become the most wanted man in all of Israel. And the king wants him because he wants rain. And he had said, there's no rain until we meet again. And he says, I want you back. And so Elijah is on the run for this period of time. We are at the end of the three, three and a half years. And it is now time for the rain to come back through a miracle of the Lord God. And so in chapter 18, God directs Ahab at this point. He says, okay, I want you to go back and have a second meeting with King King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. We read about it in chapter 18. It says, And it came to pass that after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year and said, Go show yourself unto King Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. And there was this sore famine, terrible drought that was taking place in this entire region. And so now he's ready to go. And he's ready to meet him. And so he starts on the march. It's going to get ready for that contest. Here's a question that comes up. We'll mention again next next week. Does, a, does Elijah know about the contest and what's supposed to happen? We don't know that. But has there been messages from the Lord that aren't recorded that Elijah relays? We saw that this morning, right? We saw how he said, the Lord said to the widow, he is saying to you, the widow woman, he's going to do such and such. Well, we never hear how that message was delivered. We just hear that Elijah mentions it. So Elijah's going to go meet Ahab. How much he knows about the contest, we're not sure about if that's been revealed. But going to Ahab now, setting up, this is a dangerous situation for, for Elijah. Elijah is facing a king who, I remind you, there's been no hint of repentance in three years. 
In three years with all this judgment and knowing this is the hand of God upon his life and upon his kingdom, the king has not budged an inch. In fact, up to this point, we read in chapter 18, verse 4, we read about all the prophets have gone into hiding. So during this period of time, the persecution against the prophets of God has gotten worse, not less, though he knows it's judgment. We know that, that for Elijah, there's been that search going on for all this period of time. And when he finally runs into, into King King Ahab, go down into the passage, verse 17. When they first meet on the road in the, in the court, wherever it is, it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said, you're the one that troubles Israel. You're the one. In other words, Ahab isn't thinking this is any bit of his fault. He has not listened to the message of God that has said, you have disobeyed, you have brought this punishment on. He is blaming the punishment upon the prophet of God, which is typical. We know this is typical. People who are caught up in their sin and determined to not repent, they will find excuses and they'll blame other people or blame other situations. Blame shifting happens frequently. And so it's happening in Ahab's heart. Instead of repenting, he is blaming, Ahab, blaming the prophet of God. And he's saying, you're the problem and you're the issue and you better get this settled right now. But Ahab, So going to King Ahab, an unstable, unsteady fellow, this is dangerous for Elijah, but he goes. He goes. God has built his faith. He's going to go once again. He's going to meet the king. In route, and as he's going, he meets a man by the name of Obadiah. And there's, there's a story here that's given before meeting. And, and God gives a number of verses talking about Elijah in a conversation with Obadiah. And it's interesting that God would record this. So there must be something here for us that God gives these 13 verses about encountering Obadiah. It isn't the guy... It isn't the one that he's supposed to deliver the message to, but Elijah meets Obadiah and says, I want you to arrange the meeting with the king. And so we read the story. And before I go any further, let's read the account. Let's read their encounter along the road as he is headed to meet the king. He meets this man, Obadiah. Who is he? And Ahab had called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house, that is Ahab's house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred of them and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into all the land, unto all the fountains of water, unto all the brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he knew him and fell on his face. And he said, Are you my lord, Elijah? Though he knew him, he asked. And he answered and said, I am. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah says, What have I sinned that you would deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? In other words, my king is really a weird fella. He's, a, he's angry with you. I don't want to be the one telling him about you. you know, this is dangerous dealing with Ahab. As the Lord thy God lives, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek after you. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of every kingdom and nation that they found you not. And now you say, go and tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He says, it'll come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry you whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll slay me. I'm a servant, and I, but I thy servant, I fear the Lord. I've been fearing the Lord from my youth. 
Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave, and I've been feeding them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he's going to kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto King Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. This fellow is an interesting fellow. Now this is not the Obadiah that the book of Obadiah is written about. He's a different prophet. Uh, he's already, that's a different prophet. This Obadiah is, a gover- is working in the government. He's a believer in Jehovah. He makes it clear that he has been believing in the Lord and he fears God genuinely, it says. That's from his youth he has feared the Lord. We know this about him. So he's a believer, been, been a believer for a long time. He did something very risky. He hid 100 prophets during a time of deadly persecution. He was putting his life on the line. He was doing what some of those people did in Germany when they were hiding Jews. And if they got caught hiding the Jews, they would die as well. And so here's an individual who's, he's done some things. And by the way, he sacrificed personally to feed 100 people for an extended period of time. The prophets to protect them. He's giving them food and water. And I remind you, water is a rarity. It's scarce at this point because of the drought. So he's putting out money. He's trying to serve the Lord. He's trying to do what's right. And he's making these comments. He's in the government. He's working as the governor. The idea is, could he be the prime minister? Could he be the second in command? Could he be the vice king, the vice regent, chief of staff? Whatever term you want to use, he is so trusted by Ahab that he leads half of the troops in the search for food and water. And so he is entrusted with going one direction in the kingdom while Ahab personally takes the rest of the, the troops to go another direction. So he is trusted. He is in, he's in tight with Ahab. Ahab relies upon him. And so he's holding this position, this power. He's trusted in that regard. And the comments that come up here is that some question, and a, and a couple commentaries say, this is, this is one of those passages that show why believers cannot work in government. I'm not so sure that this is the point of the story. By the way, let's ask a question. Is it possible in Scripture that believers can work for the government? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You can start thinking of a number of examples of people who have jobs in the government who are told that they, sh- they, they were never told they should stop their jobs. I think of people like Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer. He was also a governor for a period of time, a godly individual. I think of Esther, who is married to the king. And she is used by God to salvage and to, and to save the Jewish people at one time. When Cornelius the centurion is interested in salvation, God doesn't say, I'm not interested in you because you work for the, uh, the government. God sends Peter to him to be able to speak to him. When John the Baptist is preaching his messages in Luke chapter 3, and he's speaking to soldiers, and he says, bring forth fruit of repentance, he doesn't say, quit your jobs for the army or for the government. He says, rather, stop using your position to abuse people. But he doesn't tell them to stop their jobs. Well, if we were to think about individuals who worked for an ungodly government, who would you think of? That were godly, godly men. Daniel has got to be one that just heroic figure that stands out. That he is, he is next to the king. And he's a believer. And God used him mightily in that regard. And his buddies... Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego, these are individuals. You think of Joseph in the Old Testament, that he becomes the vice pharaoh, used of God. Now what we know about Daniel, we know about Joseph, and we know about these individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did they hide their faith? No, not at all. Not at all. Even in their positions was Daniel, who was working for, the, for, for King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, did he hide the fact that he never wanted, that he was a believer in Jehovah. No, in fact, when they made the law, you shouldn't pray. What does he do? He goes and prays in private and ends up in the lion's den. So here are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They worked for the government, but did they, did they hide their faith when they were all told to bow down and worship the idol? No. They stood firm, and as a result, they end up in the fiery furnace. Okay. And so you have the same thing with Joseph. Joseph makes it clear to the Pharaoh that he is not the one who is revealing the dream. It is the Lord God Almighty. And so you have believers working in government, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Thank the Lord because a number of you work that way. And that's okay. There's nothing ungodly about that. Obadiah is not an example of telling us you shouldn't work for government. But Obadiah is an example telling us that, hey, wait a minute. Um, when you do work for the government, maybe you shouldn't hide your faith. What I get from this is this story is this. Obadiah is not as spiritual as what he thinks. Obadiah makes it very clear. I'm a godly man. I'm very godly. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And the reality is he isn't as, as spiritual as what he thinks he is. Um, a few weeks back during VBS week, um, you know, my, my van that I use to, you know, haul around the stuff that we need for VBS and things like that, the game equipment and things for the early in the morning, twice it left me sitting because the battery was dead. You know, it never happens. Your battery never goes dead at a convenient moment, right? It's always inconvenient. And so it was, okay, the battery is shot. I need to get it replaced. But I took it down to get it tested just because I want to make sure that the battery, and the battery tested really good. It was just low on charge. So somebody that I used with the mechanic, they went and checked it out, and they found out that my alternator was working sometimes and not working sometimes, working sometimes, not working. It was putting out too little of a charge to recharge the battery, and other times it was fine, but it wasn't consistent. And as a result, that meant that my battery would go dead at times because we're using more power with the air conditioning, with the lights, with the fans, or other things of that sort. You know, my, my alternator became fickle. And that means that you have to replace the alternator because it's not going to survive in time and you're going to have those situations where I got left a couple spots where I didn't want to be. The same thing is true in this text, that we have a fickle believer who at times is serving God and other times he's not serving God. And he's not as spiritual as what he thinks. You know, my alternator was tested and the, the meters show that it wasn't putting out enough power consistently. Let Obadiah be the test, the meter reader of your life. And ask yourself this question, am I doing some things like Obadiah that shows that I am fickle instead of faithful? In other words, let's ask these questions. Here's the, here's the meter read tonight. Do you put personal gains and per, over personal godliness? Do you put personal gain over personal godliness like Obadiah did? Obadiah, as we already mentioned, he's working for a government that is an anti-God government. 
Again, that doesn't make it wrong for him to work for the government. Joseph did. Daniel did as well. But he is in a spot where they are definitely anti-God. They are persecuting the prophets of God. We read about that, how Jezebel has this program. The state religion for the Jewish nation is not Jehovah worship. It has become Baal worship. Well, that that's just blows your mind when you think about it. And, oh, and Ahab has shown himself consistent. He doesn't like to be rebuked. He doesn't like to be told he is wrong about his religious convictions. In fact, he has already been stated in this text that he is persecuting the prophets of God. He is after, um, after Elijah. He, is ta- he has got a massive manhunt going. He's taking oaths from different government leaders. If you went and read in Second Chronicles 18, it talks about him, that he is approached by King Jehoshaphat from the south, and they are talking about going to war again, uh, together. And King Jehoshaphat says, Ahab, do you have anybody who could tell you what, you know, could, could basically read the tea leaves, tell us what's going to happen in the future? And Ahab says, oh, there's one man we could get counsel from, but I hate him. He says it. I hate him. Because he never tells me what I want to hear. Okay? And he's Micah, the pro- prophet by the name of Micah. And he says, and I hate him because he doesn't tell me the things I want to hear. So Ahab does not want to listen. Okay? He, is not, he is not an individual listening to people. And when he meets Elijah, we already said, he says, Elijah, you're the one that's brought all these problems on us. So this is the guy that Obadiah is working for. He's working for an individual who is paranoid, an individual who is anti-God and very strongly anti-God and against any spiritual counsel. Where does that leave Obadiah? You have to come to a conclusion. Obadiah kept silent. He didn't rebuke the king. He's an advisor to the king. He's a second-hand man to the king. But he never, he never said anything about Baal worship. Everybody who did say something about Baal worship, they've gone, they had to go into hiding. They've had to, they had to do It's telling you and me something about this man. This man had faith, but he was a secret closet Christian, a closet believer. And he did not stand up and rebuke a fellow Jew who was violating the Ten Commandments by idolatry. Why did he do that? What was it? What was his motivation? Position? Wealth, gain, and by the way, he got wealthy. How do you know that he's a wealthy man? He fed the 100 prophets. He gave them for an extended period of time. Okay, we know that he's profiting from his position, but it's through his silence. That what he's doing, he's the one that is saying, personal gain, personal power, personal business is more important than my faith. You and I have to ask the question, does it ever happen today? Do believers ever today say, I'm going to go along with everything that's going on around me? Whether it be my co-workers, when they go bar hopping, I'll go along with them because I don't want them to think less of me. I, I'm going to get involved with, with the lies. I'm going, to, I'm going to do the gossip. I'm going to do the things that are forbidden by the Word of God. I'm going to do them just because I don't want to lose favor with my with my friends or with my co-workers or with my employer does it ever happen that people will give money to missions here that they will definitely gladly put it in a plate to make sure that we get the word out but they'll never say a word about christ at work or at school 
They want missions to be done by other people. Is it ever happened that fellow believers will lie so that they can make a sale, so they can make a better commission, so that they can get advancement, that they'll do questionable ethics? Does it ever happen that somebody will say, I'm going to be very quiet about positions on evolution or gay marriages, or I'm not going to say anything about drug use and illegalization of those things. I'm never going to say anything, because if I write a paper on that, and if I write something that in, in, for a class that portrays what I believe, I might get a bad grade. And I don't want to get a bad grade. I don't want to get in trouble with the boss. So I'll never disagree with him. Even if he's talking about, or even if they're in the co-workers at the workforce, they're having discussion about why it's okay with premarital sex, why it's okay to do drugs, it's not that bad. But I'm never going to say anything about righteous living. I'm not going to be the salt, I'm not going to be the light, I'm just going to turn my bulb off. Does it ever happen that believers, they want to hear about the boldness of other saints abroad, but they don't oppose the greed and the evil that's close to them? Or because I want to fit in, I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll say the right things, but come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I want to tell the dirty jokes so that I still have my buddies that will invite me out to play the sports with them. Or, you know, when at work, I'm going to do what everybody else does. I'm going to kind of slough off at the job, you know, and, and I'm going to do a little bit of cheating. I, I, I don't want to stand out. Well, Obadiah was like that. He was a fickle believer. He was good when it didn't cost him a whole lot of gain, of power, of prestige, of possessions. Oh, he was willing to give, but not put himself on the line. There's a challenge, a danger here. There's a true story that comes about when one of the, during one of the gaps of persecution, they redid the Colosseum in Rome that they had used for persecution in days gone by. The emperor had plans to reinitiate the persecution once again. But there was this period of time that they did the renovation, and he hired a Greek architect who did a fabulous job to, to redo some of the sub-flooring and the, sub, the cages and things like that where they had the animals and the prisoners and the devices that were used. And so in order to honor, to dedicate the stadium and to honor the architect, he had a festival that, at that one point. And he was honoring the, in front of the crowds, the emperor was honoring honoring the architect, and he had promised him all kinds of money and all kinds of honor. And here the day of celebration is going. And to kick off the celebration, he had reinstituted some, some persecution of the believers. Out into the middle of the arena comes a group of believers, and they let the lions loose on them. The architect is horrified by it. He didn't realize that this was part of the plan. And he says to the, to the emperor, what did these people do that they deserve such cruelty? The emperor laughed and said, they're, they're believers in Jesus. They're the Christian sect. The Greek architect looked at the emperor and said, so am I. He lost all of the rewards. He lost all of the fame. He lost all of what was promised him the next week he was in the arena killed. Would you have remained silent? Would you have said, I'll just go along with it? I won't say a word? 
There's a true story that comes out of the 70s that in Gabo Diang, there's a, a remote area in the Aborigines in the Australia area, in the remote areas, that this tribe had, uh, had a spot where they found a lot of uranium, which was, boy, this, this could make money. And so the tribe, and it became a book, it became a, a TV thing that this tribe was resisting the mining company from coming in because 200 yards where they wanted to do the digging, there was this peculiar ant called the green ants that were there, probably green from the uranium, but they were green ants that were there, and they worshipped these ants. They were part of their, their ancestral worship. And so they resisted. In fact, they stood out in front of, when the government gave permission, they stood in front of the bulldozers, and you can see some of the things that... And they got a lot of attention from the world press. But that, you know, they're being challenged in their religion. They're standing up for their religious rights of worshiping the ants, and big money is coming in. And, you know, so the, the mining company had to stop, and the government had to rescind their, uh, their operating permits until or unless the tribe would sign away rights to the property. But they weren't going to do this. This was their ancestor home. This was the green ants. This, they believed if they, if they allowed them to come in, there would be all kinds of natural disasters that would befall because the gods would be displeased. Then somebody had the clever idea. Let's just sit down with the tribal leaders. And let's explain what the money can do for them. And so they sat down and told them at this time they were paying them $3.8 million, which back in that, it's big money now. It was huge money back then. And the tribal leaders were, were told what they could do with the money and how they could prosper and how they could live, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And they immediately signed away and said it wasn't that important to protect the green ants. They gave up their worship for money. Yeah, we say, fickle. We have true worship. We are worshiping Jehovah God. Do we give up our ethics and morality for popularity? That's, we have to ask ourselves that question. Obadiah did. Okay? You have to ask yourself, here's your meter. Do I give up personal godliness for personal gains? Let me ask you a second question. Are you influenced by more than you are an influence upon others. That's what happened to Obadiah. He became more influenced by than becoming an influence upon King Ahab. His influence upon King Ahab was nil. Okay, we, we see that from the text. He's right along. But show, look at how he is influenced by Ahab. Walk through the story with me. They are hunting for one thing. They're hunting for, wa- for food and water for the beasts. Why are they hunting for the, the nourishment of the beasts? If you were the king, who should you be searching for to benefit? The animals or the people? Okay, why is he so focused? And why is the king so focused saying, we need, we need stuff for the animals? I'll tell you why, okay? Because if we read in the counter passages in Chronicles and elsewhere, he is having people knock on his door, like Ben-Hadad, are knocking on his door and are making incursions into Israel to protect his realm, to protect his authority. He has got to have his army in, instead to protect from some of the upsetness of the people who are, who are you know, questioning his rule, his reign. He's got to have an army in place. 
And so in his paranoid thinking, he's got to make sure that he's, he's there. He's got his troops. We're going to look for the nourishment of the troops. And we're going to, or, yeah, the nourishment of the troops and for the animals. And by the way, he's finally invaded on several occasions by Ben-Hadad and others who keep on coming into the country and trying to take, and what they end up taking is his treasures his treasures, his treasures, and he's trying to protect his own wealth. This is King Ahab trying to protect his wealth. His concern is all about keeping himself in power. His concern is about keeping himself in his, in his lifestyle. Now, if you look at Obadiah, when Obadiah is told, hey, listen, you, you need to tell him that I'm here. You need to tell Ahab that it's in, remember, Remember the story as we read earlier on when there's going to come rain when Elijah meets Ahab once again. It's going to come back. You would think Obadiah hearing that Elijah wants to meet with Ahab would have said, great, great, that means the drought will end. He's not concerned about the drought ending. He's not concerned about the people that he is leading. He's not concerned about the, about the nation population that they're protecting. He's concerned about his own life. Verse 12. Verse 12, he makes the comment. He says, I'm going to go, and what's going to happen is the Spirit of God's going to take you away. I know that the Spirit of God's going to take you away because he's taken you away for three years. We've been looking all over. And he says, I, 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 I fear that I'm going to lose my life. He's all about self. He's become more influenced by the king, more like the king, than the king being influenced by him. Does that ever happen to believers today? Does it ever happen that believers, all of a sudden, they become more like the world around them, more like the backslidden ones around them? They start talking like them. They start dressing like them. They start fitting in. They all of a sudden get more concerned about my rights than serving other people. The believers that all of a sudden they start taking and adopting the standards that the world would say, which basically some would say there are no standards. As long as you like somebody, as long as you love somebody, anything goes. That's not the standard of the Word of God. The Word of God for holy living, the standard of the Word of God for, for doing what's right. You know, I have to ask the question, so our entertainment, our music, does it, does it, is it permeated by what the world is, what it does? You know, do we act like the, like the co-workers or are we an influence upon them? Your classmates, do they, do they look at you and say, you know, I, I'm going to be careful what I say in front of this person because they obviously are loving the Lord and they don't want certain words used around them. Or have you lost that saltiness? Have you lost that light? We have to ask yourself an honest question. Obadiah, if you're fickle, you're an individual who's being more influenced by than being an influence upon others. Dangerous road. One we don't want to get into. There's a third test you want to ask yourself. Do you have a fear of God's will or faith in God's will? Do you have a fear of God's will or faith in God's will? Obadiah had a fear of God. Not, not a healthy fear of God, an unhealthy fear of God's will. In this story, Obadiah is told, I want you to deliver the message. The message to King Ahab that I'm going to meet with him, and that means we're going to take care of this drought, we're going to have other things happen. And he knows, he knows Ahab hates Elijah. He understands that this is dangerous stuff. He, we read about it where he says, you know, the king, you know, you're delivering me into death by giving me this. And I, I find this interesting. 
Go to verse 9. He says, you're, you're asking me to do this job, to deliver the message. What have I done? Have I sinned that you would deliver me into the hand of Ahab? He considers the will of God for his life as a punishment. That God, you are putting me in a spot that, that is dangerous for me. And, and, and you know, this isn't fair. You're asking me to be your messenger. And, and, and I fear being speaking up because the king won't like what I'm going to say. And I find it so ironic. Who has the king been looking for for three years? Everywhere. Who's the king been looking for? Elijah. Don't you think Obadiah would run back with the message and say, I found him. Okay? But, but he's fearful. He is just apprehensive about the will of God in his life. And he expresses it. And he says, the reason I'm fearful is I think you're going to trick me. I, I, I think you're going to have me do something and you're not going to follow through. What does it tell you he thinks about Elijah? What does it tell you that he thinks about God? He has a very low view of the integrity of God and the integrity of Elijah. Correct? He questions whether these two will keep their word. Does that ever happen amongst believers? Do believers ever wonder if God will keep his word? Do they ever see a command of God, but they put it off because of fear? I don't want to do that because I'm afraid if I were a witness, I won't be like. I don't want to take care of caring for my elderly parents because it might infringe upon my life. I don't want to, I don't want to forgive that person because if I forgive them, then maybe they'll hurt me again. I don't, I don't want to be pure in dating. I don't want to date only a believer because I might be left out and not find that special someone for me. Discipline my kids? Are you kidding? I don't want to discipline my kids because if I, if I do that, then maybe somebody will, will not like what I'm doing and my family will be upset with me. You mean work on my marriage? If I work on my marriage, if I submit to my spouse, they might treat me poorly. Respect my parents? I, I fear doing that because maybe they'll want me to do something that I don't want to do. And he feared the will of God. So what happens? He says, I don't really trust. And that happens today. Believers do the same thing today. You mean, God, if I give the way I'm supposed to give to a local church, if I do that, I don't know if you're going to provide for me. Will you really? I don't know if I, if I train my children according to the word of God. Well, maybe they'll just be weird people. Instead of God's promise that if we train up the children in the way they should go, when they're old, they will not depart. If I work at working at my marriage and I put myself into it, I fear that maybe I'll end up wanting to stay with them. That's a good thing, by the way. Do you fear the will of God? How do you respond to the commands of God? There's a fourth question that goes right along with it. Do you substitute service for God for real submission to God? Do you substitute service for God for real submission to God? Notice the text. The text is what happens is he's told that you're supposed to go and give the message. Now we know this. We know that in the past he has fed prophets. We know that in the past he has, he has rescued them. And when he's told now, here's what God wants you. God wants you to stand up, speak out, deliver a message. He's like, no, no, I fear doing that. I don't mind doing something that is secret. 
I don't mind doing something that is nobody knows about and doesn't cost me something popularity-wise or any of that sort. And so he fears it, and then he gives as an excuse for not obeying God, I served, I did other things. Look what I did in the past. Look how I took care of the prophets. What you're asking me for right now is, is too risky, too dangerous, and I've done enough already. I've already hid the prophets. I already rescued them. And, and you know, I don't, I, I don't want to follow your command right now because it's really going to put me out on a limb. And if I do that, you know, it's going to be risky. And God, God, I, I, I'm faithful to you from my youth. I've been faithful. So don't ask anything more of me. I served you enough. I've, I've done all those things enough. So his excuse for doing right now is I've done enough in the past. Does it ever happen today? Does it ever happen today that when God says, I want you to be a witness? Well, I used to do that. I did that in the past. Speaking up now, I, I used to do that. Teaching the word of God, well, yeah, I, I used to do that. As if there's nobody that needs to be witnessed to today. As if there's nobody that needs to be taught today. As if the church doesn't have need for people to get involved. You know, I'm giving a substitute, I'm, I'm substituting service for things in the past. Does it ever happen today that you hesitate doing the will of God? Well, I was a witness when I got baptized years ago. I gave out a tract in 1981, and that's sufficient. Does it ever happen that people will give an excuse rather than energy to serve? (laughs) That's what happens to Obadiahs. They're fickle. They're individuals who are called to serve God like you and I are called to serve, to give our bodies a living sacrifice today. To work and to mold, to be, a, to be a witness to the world, to be able to train, to disciple believers. That's the Great Commission. It isn't just getting out the word. It's discipling believers, producing reproductive Christians. So that's the mission God has given us. But we hesitate. We say, but God, I've done enough. God, I used to do it. Wait a minute. Obadiah becomes a fickle believer because of his excuse. Now, despite all of that, what is amazing in this passage is that Obadiah is smart enough to change. Obadiah is is dealt with by God and Elijah, who are very patient with this guy. Very patient. Elijah's comments to him when he is is saying all this, Elijah kind of gives him a gentle nudge in the backside with his foot. Okay, spiritually speaking. And he says to him very simply, watch, watch how, how Elijah says it. He says in verse 15, As the Lord of, God, God of the host lives, before whom I stand. Remember we said this word earlier in chapter 17? This word has the idea that um, I'm serving the Lord. I am serving him right now. This is not a trick. Obadiah, I'm gonna, God's going to keep his word. This is not a trick. I will be where you tell Ahab to come and meet me. And I am serving the Lord. You should be serving the Lord as well. Very gracious, very gentle. And Obadiah gets the message. He understands, okay, he's got to speak up. He's got to speak out. He's got to arrange this, this meeting. And by the way, this is an important, he's an important character in arranging this contest. 
Obadiah's involvement sets the stage for the phenomenal contest of that fire from heaven. And it's very important for Obadiah to get the message to the king and have the king come to Elijah rather than Elijah go to the king. You think this through. Think this through in that setting. Okay? This is the end of the three and a half years of drought. This is a very important. This is going to lead to the contest. And this is going to play into it really big. Whoever comes to portray themselves as the supplicant, whoever travels to Ahab traveling to Elijah, it is portraying something very important psychologically, that Ahab has a need for Elijah, and that it's not Elijah groveling before the king. In actuality, it's the other way around, that the king has to come to him. And so setting this up, it all works. Obadiah is very critical. You arrange, get the king to come to me. And so it happens that the king comes, they have the contest, and it sets the scene. And it it unnerves some of Ahab and Jezebel's, we'll see in chapter 18 going into chapter 19. This is an important spot that Obadiah, as fickle as he was, he opted to change. He opted to do what he was told to do, and thank God he made a change. And he became the spokesman. Though he was fearful, he did it. Because he went back and said, wait a minute, God has promised me. Wait a minute, others are standing for Christ. I can do this too. And he does. And we thank the Lord that he does and that you and I can be like him. If we look and say, we have some of this fickleness, we can change and grow into being faithful. There's a story that comes out of history that Alexander the Great one night, he's roused from his sleep because one of his soldiers was caught sleeping on guard duty. And so they brought the soldier before the emperor, before Alexander the Great, and they said this soldier was one that had fallen asleep and we were going to execute him, but we thought we'd bring him by you to see if you had anything to say. And he said, well, he asked the soldier, what's your name? And the soldier responded, my name is Alexander. The emperor was aghast. He said, young man, you do one of two things. You either change your name or you change the way that you do things. Listen, folk. We are called what? Christians. We either live that way or stop pretending that that name belongs to us. We are to be Christ-like ones. At all times, at all levels, we are to be faithful.